Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 198, and we're going to talk about schoolies, that is, school buses and other buses and shuttles and things like that, that you can turn into your personal roaming home. Should you, would you, could you? We're also going to talk about adding supplemental power ports to your diesel heater, a folding dog pool that got a lot of attention at VanFest, and a tale from the road involving a dust devil. Ooh. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me once again. I am back in Chicago and a day late and more than a dollar short, but here I am and here you are. So shall we proceed? We shall. I saw a lot of folks at VanFest living in schoolies. Now, the schoolie community is a very, very big tent, a big steel tent, as it were. And what a schoolie is, is worth some discussion, because there are many, many, many different rigs that are called schoolies that are look nothing like each other. So let's start with that. Traditionally, a schoolie is a school bus, hence the name, that has been converted into some sort of rolling dwelling. But that term has kind of spread out to include things like airport shuttle buses and coaches, which are distinct from school buses in that they tend to have a flat face and sometimes a rear diesel pusher engine, which creates all kinds of advantages and disadvantages. And sometimes even, you know, wheelchair vans and things like that are included. But basically what these things all have in common is that they have a lot of space. If space is the most important thing in your build, you owe it to yourself to take a look at a schoolie. Schoolies are measured, believe it or not, by windows. <laughs> They've got, oh, I've got a five-window schoolie, I've got an 11-window schoolie, whatever. That's basically how they talk to each other. And, you know, your normal school bus might have 13 windows and a an airport shuttle might have five windows, etc. When you're looking at schoolies, you have all these things, but they do have some things in common, <laughs> mostly. They usually have an industrial diesel engine in them, because in the United States, anyway, it is illegal for an over-the-road school bus to have a gasoline engine because gasoline can explode and diesel just kind of burns. If there's a major accident on an interstate, history has shown us that gasoline school buses fare much worse than diesel ones. Now, if you are looking at a shuttle bus that was not used for school, it could possibly be gasoline. And we're not going to get into the diesel versus gasoline thing here, but most schoolies are diesel. Now, we do have to make one distinction between kinds of schoolies right off the bat. Some schoolies, that is short school buses and shuttle buses, do use a cutaway chassis, meaning the front might be a Ford or a Chevy or rarely some other kind of van. There are some ProMaster schoolies out there. They're fairly rare. And some Ford Transit schoolies and even Sprinter schoolies, those exist. And the advantage of those is that you could possibly find a local mechanic to work on them. Whereas the larger ones, you've got an industrial engine and you basically need a truck company to actually work on the engine. But we'll get into that in a second. At this point, you should have an idea of what we're talking about with schoolies. Basically, anything that's vaguely bus-like <laughs> can be considered a schoolie. So I said they're big. Abs, they're huge. The biggest of them get 45, 46 feet long. They'll have two axles in the back. I saw a really nice Prevo 
or Prevost, however you say that, at VanFest, or that was custom built by somebody. It was a former over-the-road coach for Peter Pan, which is a bus line like Greyhound, and the, the gentleman whose name's Ivan, who created this thing, just stripped it down to the bare metal and made himself exactly the perfect home that he always wanted in this very, very large bus. And then there were other people living in former shuttles that had five windows in the back, and they were, had plenty of space because the thing is, it's not only the length, it's the width. These things are very wide. And you could easily sleep side to side in these things. And the bodies are strong. Nearly all of them are made out of steel that's rated to roll on the roof without any collapse. Again, shuttle buses may be fiberglass. They may be different. I'm always holding them out. They're included in the schoolie milieu. They're not the same, so I have to keep pulling them out. One great advantage of schoolies is that if you pop open the hood, which folds forward in most cases, you have total access to the engine. It's really easy to access the engine if you know what you're doing. I had a gentleman at VanFest show me around his engine, and, and you could access everything. I mean, like changing an alternator in this thing would take you maybe half an hour. Everything was right there, and it was very simple. I am not the world's most accomplished mechanic by any means, but looking at that engine, I felt very comfortable that I could work on anything there and I recognized all the parts. Very few computers, not very sophisticated at all, which is good in this case. So a lot of older school buses are like that. Once you get into the flat face school buses, the ones that have the diesel pushers and they have air suspension and automatic transmissions and all this, then things get a little bit more complicated. But in general, you are not going to be squished under a hood trying to find things. It's all just right there. Now, these things are very comfortable to live in. When they're parked, they're super solid, and they are like a house. And I think if you are looking at the kind of lifestyle where you're not going to drive all that much, but you're going to be parked for extended periods of time, schoolies make a ton of sense because you've got this really stable platform. Not only that, and this is a thing that is not unique to schoolies, but is definitely strong in Schoolieville, is the community. The schoolie people have a tight community. They know each other. They travel together. They are always looking out for each other and trying to help each other out. There are schoolie events all over the place. There's schoolie swarm and schoolie palooza and schoolie UP, which I'm going to try to get to later this year. They are their own rolling community. And because of that, a lot of them have families. And if you are considering traveling with a family, a schoolie makes a lot of sense because you you will use every bit of space you have if you have a family. You will anyway. You want the most space possible. And I met a few families living in these rigs. Some of them had three kids, teenagers, and they were all doing homeschooling in their rigs. And uh, they were some really happy kids. These kids seemed super happy and they seemed to be really liking this lifestyle. So that is an option. I think if you tried to do that in a van, it would be a lot less comfortable. Schoolies are great. They're pretty easy to build out. Sometimes you may have a height problem. Some school buses do not have a six foot height. They have like a five foot eight height and I would have trouble standing in that. You got to figure that out for yourself. But everything is solid. It's all solid steel. There's tons of places to attach things to. And the safety is there in regards to a rollover. Where the safety isn't, 
and now we'll get into the cons, is for the driver. Safety standards for drivers are in these type of vehicles are not as stringent as they are for automotive vehicles. So they typically won't have airbags, and often they won't even have shoulder belts. The school bus I drove back in the 80s just had a lap belt and no airbags. So if I ran into a tree, my face was going to go right into that big, hard steering wheel. And, uh, ow, that would have hurt. Also, you have this weird door, and everybody who owns a schoolie generally has to deal with this weird door. You know you know what a school bus door is like. You throw the lever and the door splits in half and opens. That's fine if you have people coming in and out all day long, but if you're sleeping at night, those things aren't very secure. They let a lot of air in. So there's a bunch of different ways to solve that. Some people just cut them out and put in a regular household door. Other people will take them off and... fuse them together into one door and that had hinges and then some clever people have even reworked the articulation of the the bar that opens them so that it opens like one door and it and some people have even just built another door inside that door like up the stairs to separate it but because of the configuration of these things most of the time drivers going to be up there all by themselves there's no place for anyone to sit near the driver and it's almost impossible for the driver to have a conversation with that someone else because and this is something to consider these things are not great on the highway most school buses are geared lower they're they're not meant for highway use they're actually geared for 40 miles an hour so the differential in the rear the gears in there don't like highway speeds the engine's always at high rpms it's extremely noisy so if you are going to be the type of person who builds out a schoolie and drives a lot make sure you check the rear end and see if you can get one designed for highway speeds because of this i don't think schoolies are a great vehicle for people who travel like i do often which is to stay one night in one place and then go to the next place i think schoolies are better for occasional long journeys but lengthy periods of time in one place i think they're actually perfect for that because obviously they're hard to park These things are huge, and you know, you might be able to find a Home Depot parking lot and park on the outskirts, but if you pull one of these into a major city, you're going to have a seriously hard time finding any place to park. In fact, if you were to come to Chicago with one of these, I would recommend you park out in the suburbs somewhere and take the train into town, because you're not going to find any place to park this thing. Also, they are very slow. These are the kind of vehicles that when you're getting on the highway, you floor it, and then you wait a few minutes until you can hit 60 miles an hour. You're living in the right-hand lane. You're going up steep hills with the hazard lights on because you can't go faster than 40 miles an hour. You know, these are ponderous vehicles. They are not a vehicle that's going to help you make any kind of time. Also, because of what they look like, they're not always welcome. I just saw a story of someone who got an RV spot in Key West and showed up in her schoolie and they said, no, your rig's too ugly. We don't want it here. And they sent her away. And this is kind of a problem in Key West because there's no place else to go. She ended up having to drive all the way back to Miami four hours away just to find a place to stay. So that is a, that's a big vehicle problem, but it's particularly a problem for schoolies. If you are not a mechanic and you're not comfortable working on diesel engines yourself, it can be hard to find people to work on these. Generally, the community will help you out. Generally, it's easier out west where there's more space. But for some of this stuff, you do need a truck mechanic to work on it. And they can be very expensive. Somebody said at VanFest is a truism that a major repair on your car is $5,000, but a major repair on your schoolie is $20,000. So keep that in mind. Even though they're simple, they're also heavy duty. 
and some of those parts can be quite expensive. Also, you're going to run into registration issues. I mean, of course, you run into this with vans and ambulances and everything, but you've got your own special set of registration problems with a schoolie because what is it? Is it a school bus? Is it a truck? Is it an RV? You have to research that for yourself. As I've said before, my solution for the ambulance was that I had it titled as an RV. Therefore, it is an RV. It's registered as an RV. I just treat it like an RV. That might be a solution for you, depending on what state you live in. And of course, there's the whole insurance thing, which is the same as it always was. Good luck getting insurance. You're going to get liability insurance, but trying to ensure the value of your rig is going to be a problem because of the same issues. If you have a 1983 school bus, it's probably worth $4,000 on the books, but you've put $25,000 into it. How do you insure that? and it's you basically have to find an agent that's willing to work with you to write you a custom policy. Also, the windows and doors, I, I talked about the front door, but the side windows can be a problem too. You remember those the windows on the bus as a kid? And at least for me, you, you push these two tabs in and the window slides down and then sometimes you couldn't get it up. And yeah, they, they tend to be a pain. <laughs> the airport shuttle types of schoolies often have windows that don't open at all. And school buses often have these really pain in the butt windows. So even though it has all these windows, you may end up not wanting them. You may want to replace them with custom RV windows or you may just want to cover them up because it's not always great to have the entire thing be glass, which is what some of them are. For example, if you build a bathroom and a shower, and folks, some people put hot tubs in these things, like I said, there's tons of space. You're going to have to deal with those windows, which isn't that big of a deal. It's just one thing that you have to deal with. So schoolies, do they make sense? That is completely up to you. I'm always intrigued by them. I love the giant blank slate they give you. All that space. All of it very strong, you know. Tons of power coming from the engine and tons of space for solar and there's a lot of appeal there. But it's a commitment to a lifestyle. There's a lot of hassle. There's trouble parking and basically them being slow ponderous vehicles. These are best suited for people with families or who need a lot of space for some reason. Maybe you're going to build a shop back there. That's fine. But folks who are not going to travel that much and are going to stay put in one place for a while. For those, I think they are awesome. This podcast has no ads, thanks to the good folks who've donated money at buymeacoffee.com slash built2go. If you hear something you'd like and you'd like to buy me a gallon of diesel, which is how I have worded it here, go ahead and visit buymeacoffee.com slash built2go. That's two T's, not three, not one. And you can donate to this podcast to keep it ad-free, which I really like. So thank you to everyone who has done that and who is doing that. And now I can stop yapping about this and talk about some actual content. Van Life News. Ah, so we got another state that is trying to criminalize being homeless, and that state is Florida. And I'll have an article in the show notes, but basically they're making a proposal that is illegal to sleep outdoors or to be homeless or however they're going to word it. And of course, this bleeds over into van life. As we talked about before, it is already a felony to sleep or even cook in your van on public property in the state of Tennessee. I imagine Florida is trying to do something similar. 
As with all of these laws, there's always somebody saying that, well, the laws are on the book, but that doesn't mean we're going to enforce them. And I have not heard of anyone living in a van or traveling in a van being prosecuted for any of these laws. But I, I'm personally troubled by the idea that a law exists and, yeah, we'll enforce it if we want to. I don't like it. I don't like it. It means that most people aren't going to follow the rules and then they're going to pick which people to enforce. And how I think this would look is if you roll into town with your $180,000 sprinter and start cooking up a meal, maybe a police officer would come and say, hey, you know, that's illegal here. You should probably move on. But if you do the same thing in your 1982 Honda Civic, then they're going to give you an issue. They're going to write you a ticket or, I mean, we're talking a felony here. They're actually going to prosecute you and put you in jail for that. And my take on this is, you know, people are not generally homeless by choice. I mean, <laughs> we get into a big topic here. We're like, well, what do you mean? I live in my van. No, that's houseless. That's not homeless. You are doing that by choice. But the folks who are living in their vans because they have to, it's the only place they have to sleep, don't have any other choice. And these states passing laws aren't trying to solve the problem of homelessness. They're trying to kick the can down the road. And eventually some place is going to fill up with cans. I, I don't think it's good policy. But... I do want to make you aware of it, that sleeping in vans is getting harder and harder in some places, and one of those places is Florida. Tech Talk. Add supplemental power to your diesel heater. Okay, this is a very specific situation I found myself in, and I just something to consider here. So your diesel heater, which I love my diesel heater. I just have one of those $100 Vivor diesel heaters. I love this thing. I think it's a great solution. And it runs on diesel, hence the name diesel heater. They do make gasoline ones, and they're now available in the U.S. They're a lot more expensive, and of course, gasoline is explosive, so... Yikes. But I ran into a situation where Chicago went through a cold snap and my lithium battery shut off, basically. it First off, as you know, you can't charge a lithium-ion battery or a LifePo4 battery below freezing. And a smart BMS, battery management system, will stop your battery from being charged at those temperatures, which mine did. I have a Renogy 200 amp hour battery, it shut off. But there's also a temperature at which the battery will shut off completely. And it's like, no, I'm not doing this, it's too cold. And that happened to me. So I was in Chicago, it's freezing cold, and I wanna go out on a trip to someplace that's warmer. But in the meantime, I have to heat up my battery. So you just put on the diesel heater to heat up your battery, right? Well, diesel heaters also use power, and I don't have any because my battery is shut off until it gets warmed up. You see the Catch-22 here. Now, my diesel heater is buried in a cabinet. It's one of the drawbacks of owning an ambulance is that sometimes you have to bury stuff in the cabinets, and it's really hard to get at because everything is so solid in there. So working on my diesel heater is an effort. But I thought if I were to do this again... I would actually add a power port to my diesel heater so that I could power it from anything. I could power it with jumper cables. I could power it with a Jackery type of solar generator. I hate that term type of thing, whatever. And all you would need to do is put a, an AB switch on the power line and you might as well throw the ground in there too. 
and then just have an Anderson plug or even two studs some way to add power to your diesel heater that doesn't use your leisure battery. This way you can have heat even if your leisure battery is compromised somehow. Now in my case, I just wanted to heat up my battery so this would have worked, but I, I couldn't get at it. That was my problem. That's, that's a build problem. That's not a tech problem necessarily. So if you have a diesel heater or you're installing one, think about ways in which you can power it without using your leisure battery, just in case your leisure battery is dead or somebody steals it, or you have a situation like mine where it's just too darn cold. Now, going forward, I am going to install some heater pads that will keep the battery warm in these cold temperatures, and they have an automatic thermostat. I've talked about these before. I bought them maybe two years ago. I never installed them because things changed. But having gone through that this year, I am going to install them, and I will have a way to power those pads without using my battery. So, just a thought, have another way to power your diesel heater, just in case your leisure battery isn't doing it for you. Product review. A few years ago, I came up with a, basically a shower in a bag system, and this system you can use in a tent or outdoors or in your van or whatever, and it consists of a USB-powered shower pump, a folding bucket that you use to fill with water, and the most important part, apparently, a folding dog pool. And so the idea is that you heat up the water on the stove, you make it whatever temperature you want, you pour it into the bucket, you use the USB shower to shower, but you're doing that while you're standing or sitting in this folding dog pool, so that collects all the water. Well, at VanFest, I had this set up outside the van just to show people, and the part that impressed most people was the actual folding dog pool. Because most people have seen dog pools that you have to inflate, and they're kind of a pain, and they, they take up space. But the folding dog pools are great for a few different things. First off, if you're showering outside, it's a place to stand. You can shower out the back of your rig or whatever into this dog pool. It will collect the gray water for you, and you don't have to stand in the dust. And I know people carry around like teak mats to stand on and things like that, but this works just as well. Also, it does let you shower in the van if you don't have a shower stall. You can just put the folding dog pool on the floor in whatever shape it needs to be because it'll bend around things and all the water goes in there. And then to get the water out, you can either use the USB pump or, it, depending on how much water, you can actually pick the pool up and it has a spout and you can just dump it out in the bushes or wherever is appropriate. Anyway, the, the thing about the folding dog pool that is excellent is that it folds up. It just folds up into this fairly small shape, maybe the size of a soccer ball. If you have kids, they can use it as a, a little swimming pool. If you have a dog, they can play in it. There's a tons of things you can do with it, and you can basically just throw it in the back of your rig and have it. So this one I have, which is a Hanver, it's a funny name. I have a link to it. It doesn't matter which one you get. The one I have has actually been pretty rugged and durable, and I like it, so I will recommend it, and a link in the show notes. But think about this, just the idea of having a folding pool with you, and the things it can do that you haven't even thought of. I mean, showers. Maybe you want to take a little bath. Maybe you want to soak your feet. All these kind of things you can do with just a folding dog pool. Tales from the road. A few years ago, not that many years ago, I took people on a tour of Death Valley. Uh, from Las Vegas, I have created a day tour 
of Death Valley that takes you to places like Rhyolite and Stovepipe Wells that has these sand dunes and Ash Meadows with the Pupfish and Devil's Hole with the Charles Manson connections and all that. Anyway, it's a fun little tour. I like doing it. I've done it a few times. But one particular time, I had some guests with us. And one of those guests was the guy who invented Where's George? Now, Where's George is still around. I don't know how many people do it these days, but the idea was that every time you got a $1 bill, you would stamp on it a Where's George stamp with a URL, and people could go onto a website and enter the serial number of the dollar bill and see where it had been. And it was just kind of a fun thing to do. And you could see that, wow, this dollar bill that you picked up in Vegas was actually in Chicago last week. And three weeks before that, it was in Miami, whatever. And it was just kind of a fun thing. And the guy who invented that, who I knew through skeptic circles, as we called it, was on the tour with me. And we were out in Stovepipe Wells. We were actually right at the spot where there's a scene from Star Wars that was filmed there. And I was holding up a printout of that scene from Star Wars. It's when C-3PO and R2-D2 first land on Tatooine. And you can see how the mountains in the background line up. And you can see that it was filmed exactly where we were standing. And in the distance, we saw this, you know, kind of a cloud, a little bit of uh, dust blowing around. We didn't think anything of it. And uh, then it kind of got bigger and bigger. And I was like, looked and said hey guys um you know if you live in the city whatever you may not have ever seen this but this is a dust devil it's like a mini tornado sort of uh basically hot air is rising and it is causing a circular motion and that circular motion picks up dust or in this case sand and you can actually see as this vortex of air moves across the desert floor not an uncommon thing at all but as a lot of people who I take out to Death Valley have never seen anything like this before. I thought it was cool to point it out. And so, you know, I go back to talking about Star Wars and talking about how the sand in Stovepipe Wells isn't beach sand. It's not made the same way. And why there are sand dunes there, but not a mile away. All that kind of stuff. And then the Dust Devil kind of is getting a little bigger. And it, it's forming this path, this circular path. But it's getting closer to us. Now... I am completely unconcerned by this. Dust devils are not tornadoes, you know, they're, they're not like hyper-destructive things. And while it's unpredictable as to where they may go, I've certainly never been attacked by one. It's uh, just kind of an interesting thing to observe. Until that day, when the dust devil at some point decided that it did not like the Where's George project and made a beeline for the inventor of that product and engulfed him. He was standing on a small sand dune, and the dust devil just came and gave him the world's filthiest hug. And he flailed around just like, you know, Auntie M, Auntie M from Airplane, and he, he was trying to get out of it, but every time he moved, it seemed to move with him until finally it let him go. And <laughs> just like out of a movie, he clapped his chest, and these big clouds of dust came out of him he was completely covered in dust and while we were all laughing because you know what a crazy thing to happen he actually wasn't happy <laughs> because he had sand everywhere really fine sand penetrated his clothes and absolutely covered him in this desert grime and he was not harmed and suffered no permanent effects but at that moment he very much looked like Pigpen from the peanuts and um i think he was a little upset that we weren't 
more sympathetic towards him because we were too busy laughing. <laughs> I, and I'm honestly, I'm a little jealous. I, I wish that had happened to me because that's a great story. How I rode the whirlwind and survived to tell the tale. Yeah, I can't tell that story. But the guy who invented Where's George can. So if you ever see one of those bills that says Where's George on it, now you'll think of Dust Devils, which was completely unexpected. A place to visit. Well, folks, I just came back from a bit of a pilgrimage trip. Um, After I did VanFest, I drove out into the swamp for a while, and then I went to Boca Raton, which... um, means rat mouth actually it's a funny name for a place rat mouth but it turns out it was named that because there are sharp rocks just beneath the water that would nibble at vessels as they approached this place so they called it rat mouth but uh, has nothing to do with the land or anything certainly has nothing to do with the people who live there and the people who live there have a very fine institution called the boca raton museum of art And in there, on the first floor, the main exhibit right now through Maine is an exhibit called Smoke and Mirrors. And it is an exhibit by Jose Alvarez, D-O-P-A, husband of James the Amazing Randy. And it is dedicated to the convergence of art and magic. It's called Smoke and Mirrors. And the first section is entirely devoted to James the Amazing Randy. And since I worked for Randy for many years and had a close relationship with him, it was it was quite the walk back in time for me. They had all kinds of things from his life, such as the linking rings he used and Alice Cooper's head, which he chopped off every night during the Billion Dollar Babies tour, a straitjacket like the kind he used when he hung over Niagara Falls. They had video clips from when he was on Happy Days, tons and tons of newspaper articles. And the thing that struck me the most was I had stories for all of these things that weren't being told there. And, and, you know, that's kind of okay. That's how art is. When artists create art, they don't tell you all the story. They let you come up with your story. I mean, that's point of art. Art is created in the head of the observer, not from the artist. The artist is just the facilitator. Okay, we're not going to get into the what is art conversation. I have not smoked nearly enough for that right now. But I loved this exhibit, and there was a lot of really interesting ancillary stuff there. I mean, even if you knew nothing about James Randi, you would certainly learn stuff from this. But the exhibit isn't entirely about James Randi. It's also about magic and perception and how it bleeds into the real world because that was what was special about randy not only was he an incredibly accomplished stage magician and author he also showed that the tricks magicians use to fool people are also being used by con artists and shysters people like faith healers And psychics and folks like that use common magic tricks to fool people and steal their money, basically. And that's the smoke and mirrors part. You can go watch magic to be entertained, or you can be fooled at your expense. And this exhibit is dedicated to that interface. At any rate, if you happen to be in Florida, go to Boca Raton and see this exhibit. If you go and you have any questions about anything you see about Randy, please feel free to write me. I will talk about Randy forever. And if you want individual specific stories about anything you saw there, and if I have them, I will totally share them with you. So you can get in touch with me at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two threes, 
not uh is it two yeah that's two t's not three not one and i will be very happy to share those stories with you but wow i really enjoyed this and then that's just one exhibit in the museum there's a whole other exhibit upstairs and the sculpture garden out back is interesting they have oh i'm not going to reveal the secrets here but there is a section of the sculpture garden out back that's a little bit haunting and it's haunting because of seashells so i'll let you go figure that out on your own resource recommendation one of the people I met at VanFest has created a tool for van lifers or for anyone else who loves to travel, and it is called chasing70degrees.com. So that's the word chasing, the number 7070degrees.com. You may have heard of this. There was a meme going around that showed how you can travel the U.S. and always be at 70 degrees, but it prescribed a very specific route. You had to go exactly where they said at exactly that time. What Chasing 70 Degrees does is it lets you pick your own route. Basically, you say where you want to go, and it will tell you how to go there and stay at 70 degrees. Like, for example, let's say you want to go to Houston. What's the best time to go to Houston and stay around 70 degrees? Oh, but you also want to go to Oklahoma City. Okay, well, let's incorporate those in the trip. But then, oh, what about Miami? It will help you formulate your route to stay at whatever temperature you want. I mean, it's called Chasing 70, but you can set the temperature individually so that you don't run into situations where you're in Miami in July (laughs) or you're in Butte, Montana in January. Both of those would be very uncomfortable. Now, this is not a free site. It looks like he's asking for $20 as a one-time payment. And I think it is worth it if you are absolutely planning the trip of a lifetime. Like, if you're going to spend two years out on the road exploring the United States, 20 bucks is a small price to pay to be able to actually see all these temperatures across such a region with all these different variables. If this sounds like something you're interested in, check out chasing70degrees.com and see what you think. It, this is better than any of those highway weather apps. They're short-term. This is for long-term planning. Should I retire and and chase 70 degrees, which is about the temperature I would like to chase? Yeah, I will definitely be doing this. Well, folks, you've wasted another perfect... Oh, wait, no, I can't use that. That belongs to somebody else. (laughs) This is not car talk, although I do love car talk. Thank you for listening again. I really appreciate you being here. We're closing in on 200 episodes, and I don't know what I'm going to do with that, but I will do something. (laughs) Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember the words of David Mitchell, who says, travel far enough, you meet yourself.